that is that's so awesome. Such a great job on the music this morning, guys. And um, I hope you're, I mean, I know you guys always look at the lyrics. I know you guys always kind of pay attention to what's going on as, uh, as people are singing songs. And I'm sure you're all sitting there asking yourself these questions like, oh, yeah, how does that now fit with that scripture text? And, and what is this really saying to me right now in my life? You know, um, where am I like with that? I know you're all doing that, right? <laughs> well, it takes years of training to get there. <laughs> it takes years of intentional training to start listening to lyrics and go, oh, wait a minute. Oh, that's the human condition. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I know what that is now. I know I understand why the gospel's around and what that actually means. So um, have you ever been through the desert on a horse with no name? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, you have. That's the whole point why we did the song. We've all been there. Yep. We've all been in those places where we suddenly feel like we are completely overwhelmed. We don't know who we are. We don't know the horse we rode in on <laughs> or the horse, the horse we're riding on. We don't know exactly where we are at this moment. And yet somehow when we finally find our place in the midst of this desert, in the midst of this reality that's overwhelming, if we're paying attention, and that's the hard part, if we're paying attention, we suddenly realize, oh yeah, in the desert you can start to remember your name in the desert. Some of you know what I'm talking about, right? Some of you know what it's like to be there where you've been in this reality and you've been told and you've lived your life and you've lived according to all of these other persons, these other selves, these other narratives, and suddenly you feel this sudden experience. Wait a minute. I don't know if that's me. I don't know who I am. And you find yourself in the desert. And if you're lucky and you're intentional, you suddenly realize, oh yeah, now I can hear my name. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting song that really speaks to that. I, that's not what his intention was. He told us that at the concert, he was, and it wasn't because he was taking drugs. He wanted to reiterate, it wasn't the drugs. <laughs> it wasn't morphine, a name that's a, you know, horse is a nickname for that back in the 70s. He said, it wasn't that. He said, I just love nature. And I, and I thought, well, okay, so he just hasn't really heard his name yet. That's all that is. But the song still speaks to it. So I want to tell you a quick story. There was, a, there was, the, there was this uh, rabbi. And in the middle of the week, he decided to go and to pray at the temple. And he had the windows open and the doors open. And so he went up to the front of, of the temple, and he was praying. And he got on his knees, and he was like, oh, my God, oh, Lord, oh, Lord, I'm nobody. I'm nothing. I'm nobody. And as he was praying out loud like that, one of his congregational members came along and also heard him and so went inside and she started, she knelt down next to him and she too felt so moved by his prayers that he, she too began to say, oh Lord, oh God, uh, I am nobody, I am nothing, I am nobody. Well, just then the janitor who was in the synagogue and cleaning up heard the two of them and felt moved and dropped his broom and went over and knelt down next to the other two and started screaming out, Lord, Lord, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. To which the rabbi looked over and elbowed the woman next to him and said, look who thinks he's nobody. <laughs> Hang on to that. Because Ecclesiastes is basically sitting here going like, what's the point? All of this, I was a ruler of the kingdom. 
I'm a great teacher. I've done all of these great things. I've established all of this great stuff around me. I've accumulated all of this wealth. I've accumulated my legacy, if you will. And it's all pointless. I'm going to die. Somebody else is going to take it over. I don't know if they'll do the good job that I've done. I don't know if they'll be as good as me. <laughs> I don't know if they'll, if they'll have the same values I have. I don't know if they'll carry on this same thing. They may ruin the whole thing. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You know, as we get older and as we leave a ministry or as we leave a business or as we leave our work and we've worked a long time and we've moved on, we think, you know what? They're going to forget I was ever here. After a while, you know, one generation, maybe grandchildren, maybe that generation, but then after that, what's the point of it, right? I mean, basically what we have here is the existential Eeyore of the Old Testament. You know, I'm nobody, I'm worthless, it's pointless. Go ahead, have a party, whoopee. And then you come to the Luke text, which is also this existential text. Because here's this guy who's saying, and some of us have been in this situation too with our families, you know, at the end of someone's life, and, or the parents, or the, uh, the, the inheritance, and it's like, you know, we want to be fair, and we have the conflict with the family, the extended family, and the brokenness, and the dysfunctionalness, and we see it in our families, we see it in our nation, and so he goes up to Jesus, and he says, so make this fair, divide it evenly, do the right thing, and Jesus simply says, who made me the judge? And then he tells a story about a farmer, a rich farmer, a rich landowner, who then gets all these crops and stores up everything for himself. And then God says to him that very night, he says, this very night your soul is going to be required of you. And then what about all this stuff? Now, oftentimes we think that may have to do, or maybe we've grown up thinking that had to do with, well, you know, where are you going to go after you die? You know, you're worried about all this stuff now, but you can't take it to heaven. Can't take it to hell either. It's not about either of those. And then he says, think about what it means to be rich in God. I'm nobody. Look who thinks they're nobody. So I want to talk with you in this series that I'm going to be doing for the next several Sundays called The Journey of the Heroine, The Heroine's Journey. And the reason why we're going to look at the heroine's journey is because it's different from the hero's journey. Now, the hero's journey is what we all know. Because we've all seen everything from It's a Wonderful Life to, uh, to, Mary, to Mary Poppins to uh, uh, Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz to Harry Potter. It's in every single story and narrative that's been, that's been popular throughout the decades and throughout the centuries in folk tales and mythology. The hero's journey has been sort of like what Joseph Campbell called the monomyth, right? The singular myth that sort of transcends cultures. Let's pull it up here and see what it is. You can kind of look through it with me real quickly. So counterclockwise, we're in our everyday world, right? And then all of a sudden, something happens. Our world is disrupted. Individually, it might be the loss of a loved one, or it might be the loss of a job, or it might be an existential crisis like the teacher was having in Ecclesiastes, or like the, or like the young man didn't realize he was having when he approached Jesus about dividing his inheritance. There is this sudden call because there's a disruption in our reality. That's the adventure. That's the monomyth. That's the thing that Joseph Campbell said. So then you come to your first threshold where there's resistance. You, there's this internal resistance. Moses sees the burning bush, and he goes, not me. I'm not up for this. I can't do this kind of job. God says, out of the burning bush, you're going to go lead the people out of Egypt. Moses says, not me. There's this resistance. 
And then something, or in, or in, in Jonah, for example, it's the belly of the whale that he's thrown into. And some point, then we come to this place where we have the challenges and the temptations because we've decided we have to do the journey. There's no way around it. We have to make the journey. The reality is is we don't have to. We could deny the journey. We could deny this threshold. We could simply live in denial. Look at our nation. We've been living in denial for centuries. I mean, for you know, decades and decades and decades. We've never really quite gotten it right. Christianity, same thing. As a whole, still struggling to try to figure out exactly how to get it right. We live in this kind of denial. Immediately, we move from what Jesus started in the first two centuries and what the first communities of Christians did that was all about community and all about serving one another and servanthood and all about the presence of being there for one another. And then it became institutionalized. It became power-oriented. It became empire. Then it became exclusivist and club-oriented in a sense, kind of our God versus your God. And then it got all messed up. And even to this very day, it gets kidnapped for the purpose of whatever someone's intention or some group's intention is and we're still trying to figure it out some of us don't ever face the threshold we just kind of move and turn away the reality though is that when we don't face it according to the myth we find ourselves moving further and further into disruption and disarray so you see what happens you meet the world of the world of trials you end up going you meet the the helpful people the helpful mentors the wise information dorothy meets the wizard and she meets the three friends on the road harry potter has his friends and he meets his trials we know this story right we know this story very well we also some in some ways can identify with it but i want to suggest to you one thing this is a very masculine narrative it is a very individualistic narrative which is fine, it's fine, it's certainly our stories, our culture and our histories and the world's culture is replete with it, with this masculine orientation, this empire kind of orientation. We go out, we succeed, we achieve, we accomplish this, this uh, obstacle and we bring back a boon to share with the community. It's a good thing. Women go through it some, to some degree too, but I think women even go through it too because sometimes we are all too identified with our masculine energy. We are all too concerned about the, the story of scarcity, the story of consumption, the story of I don't have enough, the story of the person with the best looking place is the best person, the story of the person who has the best family is the best parent, the best family, the best father, the best mother. See, we still live by that kind of story. It's a masculine-oriented story. It's not necessarily bad, it's just not quite the whole story. Richard Rohr would say that's the first half of spirituality because that's where we're stuck in. We're stuck in this whole thing around identity. Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? And we're really supposed to be going like, look who thinks they're nobody. Hang on to that. <laughs> it's the heart of our cultural myth. I was, at this, I was in northern Michigan. It's the Ojibwe territory, Ojibwe reservation, and I went to the Ojibwe casino. I didn't go to gamble. I don't care if you gamble, but I just want to remind you, no one's as addicted to gamble. They're all addicted to losing. <laughs> so if you go to gamble and you can't walk away after the first game, you are getting addicted to losing. All right? If you play the lottery, you're addicted to losing. Sorry. I know. It's a great dream. 
So the big, the big, big lotto, lotto was coming out right this last year, some, um, this last week. Somebody won, what, $670 million take-home pay or something like that. And it was that. I was walking to the casino because I wanted the neighborhood that we lived in has, a, has an annual sale, a, a sort of like a lawn sale, where they all bring out their antiques and they bring out their junk. And, and everybody's living off of everybody's recycled furniture in this, cot- in this cottage community. That's basically how this thing works. And so people were putting their stuff out, and they were selling it for cheap, you know. But I didn't have any cash. I just needed $3. I didn't have any cash. And I went to the bank, to the ATM, and my, my, my debit card didn't work. And so then I'm driving around on a Saturday going like, oh, my gosh, so there's banks open until noon. Every bank I went to, I said, can I do a cash advance on my credit card? And they're all like, no, no, we don't do that anymore. We don't do advances on credit cards. I'm like, come on, really? I just need $3. But nobody would give me any any cash. So I went to Easy Cash, that store called Easy Cash. And I walked in and I said, you guys probably can help me here. Can I do an advance on my credit card? And they said, nope, can't do it. Do you have a debit card? I said, yes, it doesn't work. They said, well, I'm sorry, we can't help you. And I said, there's got to be some place. And they said, oh, yeah, you need to go to the casino. They'll take anything for money. So I went to the casino, and for a 20% fee, I got $5 cash. <laughs> well, actually, no, I got $50 cash. I figured I might buy more than just that one little thing I wanted. But as I was making my way out, I was seeing people at all the different you know, slot machines and everything and listening to all the crazy music that was going on. And some of it was so interesting how the music itself, the very lyrics, if you're listening to the lyrics of the music for some of those songs, you're realizing the people who are playing aren't listening to the lyrics. If they were, they'd be going like, why am I here? Why am I sitting here? Because the songs are all about living life to the fullest and, 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 and finding your path. I mean, there was just great songs, but nobody was hearing those. They were just listening to the machines. And so as I wake my way out, this one guy looked at me and he said, have you played your lottery ticket? You know, this is a big one. And I was like, no. He said, well, did you gamble? And I said, no. He said, so you didn't gamble at all? And I said, no, I'm not. I just came to get some money, some cash. And he, and he said, well, make sure you get your ticket. And I said, why do you want that ticket? And they kind of listed all the things he was going to do because it's a beautiful lake. He'd buy a boat. He would get a nice cottage. He would do all these different things. And I looked at him and I said, well, okay, I know you can't. And boats are expensive. I understand that. Cottages can be expensive. There's lots of places to rent around here. There's lots of places. I mean, you, you've come here all the time and you stay overnight at these places. Aren't you enjoying the outdoors while you're here? And he's like... Well, yeah, and I said, well, how much time do you spend out there, and how much time do you spend in here? And he didn't say anything. And I said, well, just think about that. And, I, and then I just kind of had, had to head out because I had to get back before noon to buy the thing that we were looking at. There's this sense that we live with this myth that we are not enough, that life is not enough, that something's broken, or that we're not doing what we can do. We went to, last, night, uh, last Friday, some of y'all were at, the, at Brian Jolin's funeral, and a number of you heard Brian Jolin's, the stories about Brian Jolin, and all of the folks that told stories about Brian Jolin, and, and it was amazing how Brian Jolin's life had influenced so many different people. And some of you who don't know, Brian Jolin was one of our members for a long time. He and Jennifer and his son Thomas have been members of this community and longtime members of the church. He was 53, died of cancer. And it was short-lived. I mean, it was, it was a sudden. It was unfortunate. It was a loss for so many of us. But to hear these stories, you just realize, oh, my gosh, he had done so much. It just feels like... And then people were coming up to me afterwards and saying, you know, I kind of wish I would do more. You know, I kind of wish I was kind of had that kind of connection more. 
You just have this sense of how amazing someone can be and then suddenly comparing yourself, right? Because we live with this myth that we're not enough. And it feels more like we're trying to balance everything than actually in place doing what we need to be doing. Uh, this, this next image was one that I saw, and I thought to myself, I have these rocks where I balance these cairns, these rock cairns at our cottage. I just find rocks along the, along the lake, and I love balancing them and trying with them. And I looked at this thing, which obviously they're glued together, right? You know, I, I looked at myself, I looked at what I could do, and I thought, there's no way that you can find balance there. There's no way to find balance there. And then it occurred to me that that's the point. The point isn't always to find, have you ever been on a seesaw? Have you ever found the perfect balance where you're both just sitting there suspended for more than five minutes? No, I mean, you wouldn't. At that point, you would have gotten off and gone, well, this is no fun. The reality is, when we finally achieve what it is we think we're supposed to be, we wouldn't be happy because that's not the point. The point isn't that perfect balance. The point of heaven isn't to find that beautiful place where there's golden streets and everything will be hunky-dory and we'll all be happy again. We think that myth, we live by that myth because we live by this myth of scarcity as if it's not right now. It's not fixed now, it's broken now. So I hope that it's all good then. And the reality is, is Jesus is saying, you don't have enough God now. You don't have your storehouse filled with God now. That's the problem. You're filling it with all the wrong stuff, this consumption myth, this, uh, this uh, not enough myth. This happened to me this last week, this next slide. Uh, this actually happened to me. Walked up, I went to the store. I call it brain fog, post-COVID brain fog. But I went to the store, and she was like, did you find everything you were looking for? And I was like, no, first of all, I wasn't looking for any of this. <laughs> and come on, how many of you done that, right? How many of you gone in the store, and you went for one thing, and you came up with a basket? And it's like, I didn't, and then, and then if you're going for your partner and you come home, your partner's going like, I didn't ask for you to get any of this. But you're like, oh, but it looks so good. I thought I needed it. That's the, that's the way we live our lives. We're so distracted by everything, and we start looking at things and thinking, that's what I need, that's what I need, that's what I need. We're like the teacher, we're like the rich man. And I wonder if we ever can get past all of that. And I want to suggest that this faith journey that we're in is all about our need. It's, we feel like it's all about our need to feel like we're somebody, to feel like we have a purpose, or that, we, or that we desire to be loved when in reality, the one thing we truly need, I want to say goodbye to David David and, Dave, and Debbie David. See you guys. Good to see you. He was formerly on staff here, and he was one of our speakers on Friday, so it's good to see you, David. We think that maybe what we're looking for is this one thing that's going to kind of give us our sense of self. And what I want to suggest to you is you are nobody. Hang on to that. There was this mystic cat. It was a 15th century desert father. He tells this story. Uh, 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 I forget his, last, his first name, Ladinsky, the poet. He translated it, and he has it in one of his collections, The Mystic Cat. And the conversation between the mystic and the cat were like this. They were both pondering and looking up into the night sky. And finally, the mystic looked over at his cat and he said, what are you thinking? And the cat soulfully meowed back. I was looking at all the stars. I was seeing the vastness of the galaxy. I was seeing all of this wonderful amazement and suddenly being caught up in everything. And then the mystic looked at his cat again and said, so what's the problem? 
And then the cat soulfully meowed twice and said, I suddenly looked back down and realized, how did I get in this spur? <laughs> so have you ever had that experience? You're not who you thought you were. You're not who others think you are. You're not sure who you've been pretending to be all this time. You're not sure that there's not something more that you might have chosen to be. You've got all these questions, and suddenly you feel like, I don't feel like I'm in my body. When I was a minister for the first 12 years, some of you know this story, I'd, I'd pastored here as a youth minister back 40 years ago, and I'd pastored in other churches as an associate pastor, and then I'd had my own church for a year and a half. And during those Sundays, I would come in, and Linda was in another church, and we had a young family, and we were commuting 35 miles. And during that experience, I would walk into the pulpit, and I'd stand up there, and I would look out at the congregation, and I did an awesome job. And I told stories, and I, and I spoke, and I brought what I thought was a gospel of love and inclusiveness and everything. And, and it was a very... Um, biased community south of Dallas, out in a small neighborhood, small community suburb. And there was a lot of tension around those biases. You might even call it kind of a white flight community in, a, some, in some ways. This was a long time ago, 35 years or more ago. And, and so um, I was having a lot of tension. I'd have people come up to me and say, we need you to preach the word and stop telling stories. And I'd say, well, I thought I was preaching. No, 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 this is preaching the word. And then he would lay it out, exactly what preaching the word looks like. And I'd have other people come up who would say, you know, I don't like you talking about this kind of thing. And then I'd have different parties in the congregation, Republicans and Democrats, who would somehow get into scuffles with each other, and they would come to me to defend their side, like the two sheriffs, that were, the two people that were running for sheriff's office. Until one day, I think I've told you this, where they were about at the altar, and we were having communion, and I said, well, now, isn't this a nice sight? There you are, both of you, here having communion together. Isn't that wonderful? We're all sitting at the same place. We're all together. This is really who we are, not who we think we are. We're really all of our, this, bigger, this bigger reality of love. And then we went on through the service, and later on I got emails from both of them going like, don't you ever do that again. <laughs> and as I stood there and I preached, I realized there was just as many people who loved it and just as many people who were hearing this new way of understanding the gospel in a new, fresh kind of way with these stories. And, and I knew that that was connecting, but at the same time, there was something else going on the whole time. I'd stand up in the pulpit, and I'd speak, and then I'd visit people in their homes, and then I'd visit visitors, and I did all of that kind of pastoral thing. And then I'd go home at the end of the day, and I swear to you, it was literally like I was taking off my skin, and I was hanging it up in the closet, and then I'd get in bed. And then on some Saturdays before Sunday, I found myself going north to Dallas and hanging out at Deep Ellum on the east side. Some of y'all know where Deep Ellum is and what it is. I just found myself hanging out with the opposite extreme reality of where I was working. And I realized that over time, I'm not me. How did I get in this fur? How did I get in this place? Something was disconnected. Ever since I was a kid growing up in a dysfunctional family that I did with alcohol and substance abuse and abuse and all that kind of stuff, I remember thinking as I would look at the stars as I'd walk around the, the middle school nearby, and I would look at the stars and I'd think, there's something else here connective. There's something disconnected in my family. There's something disconnected in this world, and I don't know what it is. That's always been sort of like the drive for me to understand. And then I started listening to the music, and I started realizing that the songs we sing, and we often feel empowered by even, and even the praise music that we were singing in the churches I was in, 
they're singing about the disconnection. Even when they're praising God, they're singing about the disconnection. The people that don't have it versus the people that do have it. And I'm trying to say, no, 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 there's something else missing. You're not somebody, you're all nobody. We're all nobody. This next story, this next image I want to throw up here real quick. Kagan's going to Burning Man coming up in, the, in two weeks. Yay! She's going to Burning Man out in Nevada. This is one of the uh, sculptures out there. It's about 15, 20 feet tall. I put the words in. Your task is not to seek for love, but to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you've built against it. Rumi said that in the 12th century. Martin Buber, Jewish man, said this, a Jewish theologian, when he said, all real living is in meeting. What I want to suggest to you is this um, Murdoch, Maureen Murdoch quote, who was the first woman back in the 80s to start bringing about the idea that there's another way to think of myth, and that's the feminine way to think of myth. The heron's journey, she said, is this journey of the feminine about going deep down into the soul, healing and reclaiming, while the masculine is about up and out to spirit and to make a big splash. The way we understand and tell our life story is the way we begin to live our life. The heroine's journey happens both, it can happen in the hero's journey as well, but the heroine's journey is something else. It's about that second half of spirituality when we finally realize, wait, there's something else broken, there's something else missing, and we allow the light to get in in that brokenness, right? We begin to go deeper and to find that deeper connection, to pay attention more to what's going on around us as well as what's going on within us. So this 6th century monk, Dorotheus of Gaza, wrote this, and I put it in the blog. He said, imagine that the world is a circle. Imagine it's a circle. And imagine that God is in the center of that circle, and that the radii are the different ways in which human beings live. When those who wish to come closer to God walk towards the center of the circle, what are they doing? They are coming closer to one another at the same time. The closer they come to God, the closer they come to one another. And the closer they come to one another, the closer they come to God. The closer they come to one another, the closer they come to God. You are nobody. I am nobody. But the closer I come to you, the closer I get to God. Isn't that interesting? I wonder if that's not what Jesus was saying when the guy who wanted to know when he's going to get his share... And the farmer or the rancher who was holding up his store of stuff, and Ecclesiastes who's saying it's all worthless, if they were all part of that threshold, that threshold, that journey, but they forgot to go ahead and look inward at that point, they thought all of it was about the outward journey, when in fact the inward journey tells us we're nobody. We're all interconnected. When I was in Ireland and I broke a spoke on my wheel on my 600-mile trip around Ireland, and I was in the middle of a rainstorm, I found myself next to a little trailer a little, a little home trailer with a gas pump, and I was standing out there in the rain next to the gas pump trying to figure out how I was going to fix the broken spokes on my bike, and I had 20 miles yet to go to the next little village. In the rainstorm, the guy comes out of the little trailer home, and he's got a plate with a wrapped sandwich, a ham and cheese sandwich, and a cup of hot tea. And he says, I can't fix a, a broken wheel, but I can give you something to eat and something warm. And so he let me come back to the cab, to the, to the trailer. We waited it out, and after the storm cleared, he helped me take the bike down to the nearest town, to the next town, and I went into the shop that next day. I had to stay locally, and I went into the shop the next day, and it suddenly occurred to me something. We talk about justice in here all the time. When I was asking the guy, how do you fix the wheel, he said, oh, it really wasn't that hard. It really wasn't that hard. All you had to do was to go back and screw it back into the hole, and then if you had a little wrench, all you have to do is true the spokes. If you true the spokes, 
you put the wheel back in balance. If you true the spokes, you put the wheel back in balance. The journey of our lives is not about being somebody. It's about finding our truest connection in being in relation to one another. Let's skip down to the last quote here. If we are absolutely grounded in the absolute, the absolute love of God that protects us from nothing, even as it sustains us in all things, then we can face all things with courage, or what we call open-heartedness, and tenderness, and touch the hurting places in others. You guys can come on up here as we're finishing this up. You can begin to face all things with courage and tenderness and begin to touch the hurting places in others as, in, as well as in ourselves. All of this disconnection we feel, sexual identity, LGBTQ fussing and fighting in the Methodist church, abortion, uh, pro-choice, pro uh, uh, anti-abortion, all, all of this stuff is more related to fear than it is related to fact. And why is the fear there? Is because we've forgotten we're nobody. You got nothing to be afraid of if you're nobody because you're everybody. We are all everybody grounded in this love of God. And as soon as we can recognize that, we begin to hear our name. We realize, oh, I do have a name. Amen. <laughs>